So we're uh, continuing to work our way through the Gospel of John, looking at the different um, uh, throughout the Gospel of John. John, as an author of a Gospel account, uh, is, is really clear. He really puts it out there for you in terms of what his uh, agenda is in writing the Gospel. He is writing in order to help us believe in Jesus. We know this because in John 1, at the beginning of the Gospel, uh, he says in verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Uh, but then at the end of the gospel, when he is explaining to us what it is that he has written in John chapter 20, he says, uh, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So for John, faith in Jesus means that you are brought into the family of God, right? You're adopted. For, for, for John, for the New Testament writers, faith in Jesus means that you are given life. Uh, and so John is, is giving us a very orderly, very structured account. He's, he's making a case for why Jesus is God's promised Messiah. And, and central to the case that he's making, central to the argument that he's trying to give us in the gospel is pointing out specific signs that Jesus performs throughout his ministry. And when you take all of these signs together, what they are doing is they're, they're giving you a very robust, very nuanced picture of who Jesus is. Uh, and of what it is that he came to do. And so what we've done so far is we've looked at uh, three signs. We've looked at, in John chapter 2, we looked at Jesus turning the water into wine. Uh, in John chapter 4, we looked at Jesus healing the official son. In John chapter 5, we looked at Jesus uh, making a, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, unable to walk, uh, able to walk. And today we're looking at Jesus feeding over 5,000 people. This particular uh, miracle, this particular story is, is interesting because it outside of the, of the uh, crucifixion narratives and the resurrection narratives, right? If you take that out, uh, all the Gospels talk about that. There are actually very few things that all of the Gospel accounts talk about. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of those things. It's the only miracle that all four Gospels make reference to. Uh, so it's actually really interesting when you read, you know, Mark and Matthew and Luke's versions of this story alongside of John. You begin to see all kinds of nuance and, and just depth of detail. Because as you can imagine, right, if four of us got together and talked about, you know, what happens yesterday, you know, we're all, we're all, let's say we're all at a party together, right? And we talk about, oh, how was the party? Uh, you would get four different versions of the party. Everybody's at the same event, but you get four different versions of the event simply because of how you're perceiving it, conversations that you've had. And so similarly, the gospel accounts have a lot of overlap, but yet there's nuances that they give that are really, really interesting. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I you know, I, I've, I've, I've known about this story for a long time, right? And, and the picture in my mind is like, oh, man, we had like this picnic, and it was by a lake, and it was super fun, right? Like, so it's this very like sweet, kind of tranquil, Jesus is providing food, and there's this like beautiful scene, this lake, and it's this, you know, it says, it says that there's grass, it's like, it's pretty, it's comfortable, um, and, and it may very well be that those things were all 
all true. But here's the thing, that culturally, uh, and we see this at the end of the passage, that this had all of the makings of the start of a revolutionary moment. Uh, so there is, this, there is this cultural tension at work in the passage that, uh, w- that makes sense of what we see at the end. This isn't just a sweet story of Jesus providing a picnic for a bunch of people. Uh, this is a bunch of people rec- beginning to recognize something more about Jesus and seeking to, to use Jesus as their mascot for their agenda. And Jesus is going to have none of that. Uh, and so that's what we're going to see this morning. So uh, the story begins, and Jesus is with his disciples. And, uh, and, and uh, in John, it's not as clear, but in the other gospel accounts, it's really clear that, that they're going off into this more desolated area. They're going off to like a little region by themselves uh, because they just need a little time to debrief of what's been going on. Lots of things have been happening. Uh, And so they need some time for Jesus to spend with the disciples in order to invest in them and talk with them about all that is going on. And and very importantly, uh, the Gospel of John tells us that it's uh, it's Passover time. All right, now this is really important. You have to like latch on to this in order to understand some of the things that are going to happen later on in the passage that we're looking at this week, and then we're going to look at the rest of this passage next week uh, as we see Jesus talk about being the bread of life. So I want you to, I want you to, I need some interaction now. I'm just warning you, right? Uh, When I say the 4th of July, what images come to mind? Fireworks. I knew you all were going to say fireworks. What else? Hot dogs? Let's just say food. All right, what else? Flags? I see... I don't know what it is about 4th of July, but it's super easy to alliterate the 4th of July with the letter F. Flags, family, fireworks, food. Um, so, so all of those things are, if you've been in the United States for any period of time, even if you're not from the United States, right, 4th of July has certain immediate cultural connotations, certain immediate images that come to mind, okay? Uh, similarly, for the people of Israel, at this time, Passover would have had immediate cultural connections for them. There, there are stories that they are that are on the mind as they are getting ready to celebrate Passover. What would have been some of those stories? Anybody? The Exodus, right? So you've got uh, ten plagues. You've got miraculous feedings happening, uh, miraculous provision of food happening in a deserted area. You see where I'm going? Hang, keep, keep up with me here on this, right? Um, so Jesus and the disciples are off by themselves, and then a crowd begins to gather. Uh, and what we're told is that the crowd is 5,000 men. Uh, so everybody who comments on this. Like, I've not read anybody who disagrees with this. Everybody assumes that the crowd was between 15 and 20,000 people. Now, to help you wrap, because, you know, that's like, oh, that's a lot of people, right? But, like, that's a hard number to wrap your mind around. So, so to help you wrap your mind around it, Pechanga Arena holds 16,000 people. All right? So that arena full, standing room only with people waiting to get in. That's the low-end figure, $15,000 15, people is the low-end figure. 
that many people, that's a lot of people, right, all gathered together. Uh, and, and we have a problem, right? These people have come. They're, they're far away from the towns. And, uh, and, they, and Jesus is like, hey, they need to eat. Uh, so he's, he's testing the disciples, and he's testing us as well. Uh, he says to Philip, uh, where shall we buy bread for these people? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, I love this, okay? So um, if you have a bite, are you full? No, you're not full, right? A bite holds you over until you can have food, right? A bite is like a little snack. Philip is saying, Jesus, like, we, here, there's, a, there's a slide. Can you show me the picture of the, den of the denarius? Um, so this is what a denarius looks like. Uh, so it would have taken 200 denarius, denarii, uh, in order to buy enough food, according to Philip, for a crowd of 20,000 people to get enough just to hold them over until they can get back to wherever it is that they came from. Which, you know, I mean, like, like yeah, like that's, I guess that's reasonable. Like, hey, let's just give them something to hold them over until they get back home. Jesus is not going to be satisfied with that, right? Then Andrew comes along and Andrew says, Jesus, I found a little boy. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. Now, you know. Uh, so five barley loaves, these would have been pieces of bread that would have been approximately an inch thick and about eight inches long. So now, how many people do you think you can feed with five? And the fish would have been small fish, right? We're not talking like king salmon here, right? We're talking like, you know, like a small snapper kind of thing, right? Um, like how many people are you going to feed with that? Like that's not enough food to feed the 12 disciples, that was a little boy's lunch. That's not enough food for 12 adults, let alone 15 to 20,000 adults. Uh, and the interesting thing, too, with bread, right, is like even, even the miracle, like the significance of this, we're going to dive into this more next week, right? Bread is a, bread, you know, bread just kind of falls in and out of fashion in our culture, you know, uh, uh, you know, gluten and carbs, and you can totally get away with having no bread in your life. Uh, bread is, is totally optional for us. Um, in Jesus' day, bread was the source of life, right? Like, just pin that. We're going to look at that more next week. But you need to understand that even the, the presence of bread in here is really s significant for where Jesus is going to take us as we continue to look at John chapter 6. Uh, so five loaves and two fish is not going to get you very, very far. But then Jesus says this. He says, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. That You may think, well, that's kind of a strange comment. Well, that's, that's telling you it is the time of year of Passover because that's when the grass is green. It's during Passover time. Uh, they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks. So he prayed. Jesus prayed for his meal. Um, he gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. It's really interesting, right? If you read, I think it's Ma Mark and Matthew, I think. Um, it's the, Jesus gives it to the disciples, and the disciples are the ones who distribute it. 
John puts Jesus in the picture of being the one who is distributing. More than likely, he's distributing through the disciples. But, but he's putting the emphasis on Jesus being the host of the meal in a very specific way. Now, what was it that Philip said? Jesus, the best that we can hope is that we're going to be able to provide everybody with a what? A bite. Does a bite satisfy you? A bite does not satisfy you. What does Jesus do? When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. You see that? This is like, I read this, I was like, how have I never seen this before? Philip is saying, Jesus, the best that we can hope is that that it's going to take all of our money, right? Because remember, the disciples had uh, a bag of money. Remember, we were told that Judas was helping himself to the money. So you can imagine, right? I don't know how much money they would have, but like what Philip is saying, like, Jesus, this isn't going to wipe our funds out. You're going to go out and like the best that we can do is that we're going to provide everybody with a little bit of food to help them out. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I got something better in store for you. Uh, and so what happens is that Jesus feeds fifteen to 20,000 people so well that everybody is satisfied, right? I want you to think of how your tummy feels on Thanksgiving evening, right? Saturday, you're like, are you hungry at the end of the day on Thanksgiving? You swear, he's like, I'm never going to eat this much again. You will. We, we do. We do it every year, right? But you get to the end of that day and you are satisfied. I want to imagine that the kind of provision that Jesus makes on this day is Thanksgiving level provision. That people at the end of the day are satisfied. They're so satisfied that there's leftovers. And Jesus is like, hey, we're not going to let the leftovers go to waste. John doesn't tell us how many baskets there were, but Mark and Matthew and I think Luke as well do. How many baskets? Do you all remember, those of you that know the story? Twelve baskets. Right, 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus, in this culture, uh, if you are having a party and you're providing, you want to provide so much that everybody is fully satisfied and there's going to be leftovers. Remember the miracle with the wine, right? Jesus provides at the end. The wine has run out. This was a social disgrace. There should have been enough wine for there to be leftovers. And Jesus produces 900, what would be the equivalent of 900 bottles of wine. Jesus is a really generous host. And so here we are, once again, Jesus provides more than what you need. From five loaves and two fish, he provides 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 baskets so that his disciples, the 12 disciples will have something to eat later. 12 baskets to signal that the 12 tribes of Israel are going to be cared for. That's, that's who Jesus is. That's what he does. Jesus does more with less. There's a, a number of years ago, I was a part of this national gathering of Hispanic pastors around the, around the U.S., uh, and and it was you know it was it was put on by Barna and some other group, and so you had you had Hispanic pastors from every ilk, every stripe, theological tradition, uh, men, women, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, non-denominational, all of them. You know we're all there, right? Um, and and what they were doing is they were talking about different dynamics that exist within the Hispanic American church, and one of the really interesting things that um, 
that I knew was true, but, you know, you, sometimes somebody has to say something, and then when, when it, once it's said, it's just like all of a sudden you're like, oh, whoa, uh, of course this was true. I just never saw it that way before. One of the things that they said during this, uh, during this event was that one of the marks of the Hispanic American church is its capacity to do more with less. Right? The Hispanic American church is, generally speaking, much more under-resourced than the Anglo church, the Asian American church, or the black church. Uh, and, and yet, God uses the Hispanic American church in really profound ways in our country. Uh, and so that, that's just one of those things that's kind of like always in the back of my mind. So I'm reading this passage. I'm, I'm like studying this uh, for myself a little while ago. Before, before I was getting ready to preach on it, I was meditating on it. Uh, using the three questions and the four buckets thing that we've been doing in the Bible studies. And, and it was like a bolt of lightning hit me. And I was like, oh, here's, of course, God's people have a capacity to do more with less. Because Jesus does more with less all the time. Jesus feeds 20,000 people, 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Jesus started a church that has revolutionized the world and changed the course of history. And he started it with 12 apostles and a group of disciples that numbered probably around 70. Uh, and Jesus continues to do that day in and day out. Now, I want to be, I'm going to make some application, but I want to be really careful. Because uh, we are a very well-resourced church in many respects. Like, God, is, God has been very gracious to us in this regard. Uh, you all are so generous financially, so generous in your volunteering. Um, so, so please don't hear me say we are this, you know, impoverished church. We're not. We're blessed in so many ways. Uh, but there is one area in which it would be very easy for us to be tempted to see ourselves as being under-resourced, and that is not having uh, a building. Uh, and yet, like if you if you step back, right, um, and look at all that God does through this body of believers without having a building, it's really quite staggering, right? Like right now, we have uh, five groups that are meeting uh, with very focused discipleship. Uh, we've got five Bible studies, and I haven't done the numbers, but I think we're, I think it's somewhere around 40 to 50 people that are in a Bible study right now. Uh, right now, uh, we've got, you know, men and women uh, and, and, and middle school kids that are with our children right now uh, investing in them. Uh, we, we, uh, uh, the, the amount of money that, that, that you generously have given to things outside of the church, right? And that, and that in some respects, like, like our not having a building and probably in some ways makes these things even more possible, right? Jesus is able to do more with less. One very, 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 very small way in which we experience that is Jesus is blessing us even though we are reliant on the generosity of First Perez right now to have a place to meet. Um, so now... Uh, landing the plane here, right? So what is this sign pointing us to? Jesus takes a bunch of bread and he multiplies it. Uh, so 
what happens next is really important for us to understand. So what happens next is that the people see what Jesus has done. They see the sign, and they immediately say this. This is verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses talks about there being a prophet a prophet that would come in the future and that this prophet would speak God's word <clears throat> and that God's people needed to listen to the words of this prophet. And so they're thinking to themselves, sorry, I don't know what's happening with my voice right now. They're thinking to themselves, this is the prophet. This is, like, this is what Moses was talking about. Now, what did I tell you a little bit ago? Remember, 4th of July, fireworks, flags, food, family. So, Passover. All right? So, what are the things that are on their mind at Passover? They, so, Jesus is teaching, and what, what, it's Passover. And so, what are they thinking? Deuteronomy 18. This is the guy that, that Moses was talking about. <coughs> um, so, for those of you that are familiar with the story of the Exodus, can you tell me of an event that happens during that time where you have a group of people uh, in a desolate place and they need food and the food is miraculously provided? Does that happen? I heard it. Laura, manna, right? Jesus is the God who provides manna. Jesus is the one who provides bread in the wilderness in order to feed his people. And, and I'm not making this up because if you keep reading John 6, guess what Jesus starts talking about? Jesus starts talking about manna. So, so to understand what's happening here is Jesus is revealing himself as the God who brought Israel out of the wilderness, who freed them and is providing for them in the wilderness as they get ready to move into a new promised land. And so here's the thing. The, I'm, I'm going to uh, submit to you that the people in the crowd actually got what Jesus was saying. They actually understood what was going on. They saw the sign correctly. They just made the wrong application. Because that crowd, see what I didn't tell you about this crowd, is most people think, a lot of scholars think, that that crowd would have been people who, were, uh, who would have been filled with people who were disgruntled with Rome. That, that these are people that were living in the hills and that these are the folks that were ready for somebody to come and spark a revolution. It's going to happen in about 70 years. And the Romans decimate the Jewish people. They just crush them. It's not even a contest. But they're ready to make Jesus be that person who's going to be their ringleader. They're ready to make Jesus the mascot of their revolution, and Jesus is like, I'm not your mascot. And so he pulls away. So you can see the signs, and you can see Jesus properly, and yet we can see Jesus and say, oh, we're going to use his power 
We're going to use him to accomplish our own ends. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works here. Right? I'm the one who will redeem you. I'm the one who's going to free you. I'm the one who's going to provide for you. And what's really interesting, uh, as I was thinking about this, it is, it is only at this point where Jesus is revealing himself as the prophet that Moses was talking about. It is at this point that the I am statements of Jesus begin. Right? The, 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 this passage is going to continue, and next week we're going to look at I am the bread of life. And then right after that we're going to look at I am the, uh, the light of the world. And then right after that we're going to look at I am the shepherd of, I'm the, what are you preaching on, Fred? I am the door to the sheep. And then I'm going to preach again on uh, I am the good shepherd. Right? So we're actually like, for the next four weeks, we're not even looking at another sign because all of a sudden now Jesus is packing in all of these statements that are prophetic that are saying, this is who I am. I've been showing you who I am by my signs, and I'm going to tell you who I am with my teaching. It's really cool. So you need to come back. All right? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much.